0: Good morning and a really warm welcome to you all this morning to Lady Well Baptist Church and to our service of worship at the beginning of a new week. It's fantastic to be together and for me to be back with you albeit remotely this morning. It's been great to have a couple of weeks off, a chance to rest and be refreshed but it's great to be back and to be able to worship together on this Lord's Day. Just a, a wee note of thanks to Jim McFarlane and to Hamish Wishart for covering uh, for the last couple of weeks. I'm sure you've been blessed and encouraged by them uh, through their ministry. And also a huge thank you to Hannah Murray and to Andrew McDonald for uh, the work that they've done to make sure that you've been able to receive the service recordings, uh, whether it be online or Uh, on cd or through the the website the audio recording on the website Uh, we have these folks to thank much hard work done uh, to make sure it's all worked uh, and uh, has been accessible to us so thank you so much to them it's great to be part of a fellowship where we have people willing and able to serve and to bless us all uh, together so uh, thank you to them As we begin our new week this week, just a few things to remind you of. Uh, Our prayer meeting on Wednesday evening, half past seven, as usual, as we continue through Matthew's Gospel. It would be fantastic if you were able uh, to be there and to participate in that time of study and also of prayer for our church and for our world. And also, you'll know that we've come to the end of our series of five uh, reflections and questionnaires on our experience of lockdown as a church and as individuals and it's uh, our desire to gather in your responses to those questions now that we've come to the end of those 5 weeks so what i'm going to ask you to do is if you can go back over those reflections and questionnaires uh, just refresh your, your memories of of uh, of what's been asked fill out any questions that you um, that you haven't maybe answered already or maybe you've you've reflected and you wish to change some of your answers get it all down on paper even if you don't think it it, it makes any sense just get it down on paper uh, and we want to gather those responses in so if you could either uh, pop your responses in an envelope and send it either to myself or to Gordon Cooper or you could send it to the church that would be fine. Someone will will, will make sure that the the letterbox is checked uh, regularly. Send them in either via post or if you've been receiving them via email, you can fill out the digital copy if you would rather do that and just email it again to myself or to Gordon, that would be fine. Uh, But if you're not going out and you don't have access online, that's also fine. Just get in touch and we'll arrange for someone to come in past and to collect them in. Even if you haven't been able to print them out, just write your answers down on uh, on a few pieces of paper. Uh, just make sure you mark which week it is that you're, you're answering the questions to and we'll gather them in. Don't worry if you haven't answered every question or maybe you've missed some entire weeks. You, you just didn't feel that there was anything there that you particularly wanted to, to answer, that's perfectly fine. Just send us what you do have, and it will be a great opportunity for us to reflect on this whole experience, this process of lockdown that we've been on, and think to the future about what we might learn from this, that we might be a better and a stronger fellowship. As we come to worship this morning, we're going to be continuing on in our summer series, looking at the core of the Christian faith. We've thought about how, as a Christian people, we are defined by the Bible, how the Bible alone is sufficient to reveal who we are and our need of salvation and who our Savior is and what we must do to be saved. We've also considered how we are saved by faith alone, and we've seen how our our salvation isn't based on any other work that might be done either by us or on our behalf. We are saved by faith in what Jesus has done in dying on the cross and being raised again to everlasting life. We've seen how we are saved by grace alone, that it is a free gift. We cannot earn our salvation. We can't merit it in any way. We are simply given this gift of God uh, that is salvation, which we receive with gladness and are transformed by. And this week we're going to turn uh, to, in some ways, the very heart of our faith itself, which is that we are saved by Jesus alone. Our our whole faith pivots on the person of Christ and on his work, and our faith uh, is grounded upon him. The Reformers used the phrase solus Christus, Christ alone, as being the bedrock of our faith. That's why we're called Christians, and so this morning we're going to consider what it is to have such a perfect Savior as Jesus. He is completely sufficient for us in salvation and in uh, transforming our lives from that point on. And to that note, as we begin our time of worship this morning, we're going to hear from Exodus chapter 15, as Israel have gone through this great experience of salvation in leaving Egypt and being spared all of the plagues that afflicted Egypt, and then coming to the Red Sea and facing death again as they are pursued by all the armies of Pharaoh, and God miraculously delivers them through the Red Sea And at the same time, as he spares Israel, he wipes out the army of Pharaoh, and on coming to the other side, Moses confesses that the greatness of God in salvation in these words in Exodus 15, verse 2, "'The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God.'" and I will exalt him. And this is what we're here to do this morning. We've come to exalt God, because he is not just the one who strengthens us and equips us day by day. He is not just the one that we adore and we we worship and praise and serve. He has become, in Jesus, our perfect Savior, our salvation. And so, it shapes our lives. It it completely transforms us. God is is the one that we praise, the one that we exalt for all he has done for us in the person of his son. And so we come together this morning to praise him in light of that salvation.
1: Today's reading will be from Colossians 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love So then just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition for the elemental forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form and in Christ you have been brought to the fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ, He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of this world, why, as though you still belong to this world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These rules, which have to do with the things that are all destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Such regulations, indeed, have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body. But they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Amen.
0: Let's join together in prayer for our church and for our world. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we give you thanks for your word this morning. We thank you for this great encouragement we receive from it that Jesus is indeed a perfect saviour. Lord, that he has set aside our record of debt, our sins, it has been nailed to his cross, it is done, it is finished, and Lord, we have been set free. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you would help us to understand this truth. Heavenly Father, we pray that we would understand it ourselves for our own comfort and assurance that as we cast ourselves upon Christ and ask for his forgiveness, that we might truly be transformed. But we pray as well that you would help us to to understand this, that we might be sent out into the world to boldly share this good news of the gospel, that other men and women just like us here in Livingston might hear and be transformed also. For we long to have them Lord, completely renewed, shaped by this good news, washed clean and set apart that your kingdom might grow in this place and that your glory might be proclaimed. Heavenly Father, we ask for Lady Well Baptist Church that you would be with us at this time. Many of us are continuing to struggle with this time of lockdown and the anxiety of not knowing how things will go. We seem to be moving forward, and yet there are setbacks all over the country, in uh, Aberdeen and down in, in various places in England. And Lord, we worry perhaps that this will happen here, that we will go back into lockdown instead of progressing forward. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would be with us and assure us of your presence, that whatever happens, Jesus will always be our sufficient Savior and our perfect sustainer. Lord, it is in him our hope is found, not the progress of lockdown. And so, Lord, we ask that you would be with each member of our fellowship at this time and bless us all with the knowledge of your presence through Christ. Lord, especially be with those who are isolated, Lord, those who are in care homes and nursing homes or those who are being cared for by their family. Lord, may we all be reminded of your presence with us for all that we are not gathering together physically. And, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would build up our little congregation here, that we might be stronger as a result of going through this time of lockdown than we were at the beginning. Heavenly Father, we pray particularly for those who are struggling, not just physically, but, Lord, are struggling mentally at this time in a way, perhaps, that nobody else knows we have a number of people, Lord, in our fellowship who are going through terribly difficult times and yet are doing so in quiet. Lord, uh, hidden away almost from other members of our church family. And Lord, I pray particularly for those people this morning. May you be sufficient for them at this time and may they know your sufficiency, that your grace would be enough for them. And Lord, in their weakness, that your strength would be made more fully known. Heavenly Father, help us to bless one another at this time. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to, to be kind and gracious and generous towards one another, but also to this community in which you've placed us. And we ask, Lord, for the community of Ladywell, that you would be a blessing to this people through us, your church, in this place. Father, we think much further afield as well this morning. We've seen in the news this past week of that terrible explosion in Beirut in Lebanon, and Lord, we ask that you would be with the people of that city at this time. Terrible confusion at this incredible, unexpected disaster. Lord, so much devastation caused. And Lord, we are able to see it in in graphic detail broadcast all over the world, which hammers home to us how terrible an event it must have been. And yet, Lord, we do not truly appreciate what the the citizens of that city are going through at this time. Lord, we pray that you would bring comfort to those who've been bereaved. Lord, that you would bring hope to those who are missing relatives and, and don't know where they are, cannot find them or contact them. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless uh, the people of that place through um, international organizations and through other countries um, supplying international aid. And we pray that our own country would indeed be generous in seeking to provide aid and support uh, to the, the people of Beirut at this time. Heavenly Father, we also pray that there would be an opportunity for learning at this time that the cause of this disaster, whatever it may be, might be avoided in the future. So we pray for wisdom also. But Lord God, as we see that event, we're reminded of the brevity of our days. And so, Lord, we ask we all might learn, Lord, to count our days, to consider the unknown nature of tomorrow and what it will bring, and our great need of a Savior who can change our lives for we simply do not know when our time will be up. Lord God, have us place our confidence not in tomorrow and the certainty of what it will bring, but in Christ and the certainty of salvation in his name. Lord God, we pray that you might bring true hope to the people of Beirut through the proclamation of the gospel and the news of salvation in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, we ask all of this, recognizing that we need you to move, to act in our lives, for we are simply not enough. But we give you thanks that when we come to you in Jesus' name, because of his worthiness, you hear and you do respond. And so, Lord, we lay all these concerns before you this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. I'm sure you've seen in the news over the last number of weeks Uh, that there have been a number of places across the UK where lockdown has had to be reversed. Instead of lessening uh, control, we've found that um, controls have had to be reinforced, that in Aberdeen, uh, movement is being restricted. You're now no longer able to go into other people's homes, uh, as you had been just a, a week or so ago, as a result of a small outbreak which Um, has begun to to develop and the numbers seem to be going up each day as it's reported in the news. And what's interesting about that is uh, I think that sense it brings all of us of unease. We've been living with a a certain sense of anxiety for uh, months now about this whole process of lockdown and its attempts to deal with this global pandemic and we've been assured that if we go through this process we will come out the other end, going back pretty much to normal. And in these moments where we see things heading the other way and going backwards instead of developing, uh, we we can feel somewhat dejected. We perhaps can become quite anxious uh, that the future isn't quite working out the way that we had hoped, and maybe this whole time of lockdown will run on for much longer. I'm sure uh, that there was no great lapse in, uh, in, in the um, controls of the places where this little outbreak in Aberdeen or, uh, or down south in England um, and those places where little local outbreaks have come about. It's just that lockdown isn't perfect. It's not entirely enough to stop these little outbreaks from happening. As soon as people begin to gather together in, in any real numbers, you're going to have these sorts of little outbreaks. And as we uh, come to our passage in Colossians this morning, we find a very interesting situation in the early days of the church, where again, the church was going through a time of, of rapid growth and expansion. Things were progressing in the right direction for all that there was difficulty and there was persecution. And yet, times had come to certain local communities where things weren't heading in the right way. There were difficulties, and we found that actually some churches were going backwards instead of forwards, and that began to cause anxiety, stress, and frustration amongst other local congregations. What if that happens here? How will we deal with that? Surely that the growth of the church is something that God is doing and he is in control of. And and if the church seems to be struggling and and regressing instead of progressing, then, then what on earth does that mean? Is God really in control? And so on. And Paul wants to encourage the believers in the church at Colossae and in Laodicea and in other places where he hasn't yet been able to visit and preach. And there are lots of things that he could encourage them with. He could have talked about how there has been great church planting success in other places, how churches have been growing and, and, and doing well. People have been saved throughout his last uh, his last missionary journey. He could talk about the faithfulness of other believers in the face of persecution and opposition and so on. And all of those things might have bolstered the church's confidence, might have inspired them to acts of greater sacrifice or or service or whatever it might be. And yet, this isn't what Paul does. What Paul does is he reminds them that they are not enough in and of themselves. That church and the success, the growth of the church in the world doesn't rest on how well they do as individuals. Paul reminds them ultimately that Jesus alone is good enough for them, for their salvation but Jesus alone is good enough for the church as it seeks to grow and expand and develop in the world. And the main reason for this, Paul says ultimately in this whole letter, but particularly in the first two chapters, is that Jesus is better than anyone or anything else. And if they forget that, They're going to wander off. They're going to go astray. They might succeed for a little while, but ultimately the church will falter and fail. They, as individual Christians, will falter and fail. What they need to remember is that Jesus is perfect, and they are not. And when they remember that and live by that in light of that truth, then things will go well with them. They will still face opposition. They will still face persecution. The church might not grow as quickly as they feel it ought to, but they will not go astray as long as they remember that one core truth, that Jesus alone is sufficient for their salvation, and Jesus alone is sufficient to sustain them through life as Christian men and women. And so we find in the first five verses of our chapter in chapter two that Jesus alone is good enough to save you, to save the believers in Colossae. We find ultimately in this passage, Paul dealing with something that we still see today that all people are looking for salvation in some form or another. We all see our lives and recognize that they aren't what they ought to be, that we want to be someone better that we want to be um, someone without all of the the negative traits that we have, selfishness or anger or that tendency to to lie or or whatever it might be. We recognize our own failings and want to be better, and yet the places where we look for transformation never deliver it. It doesn't matter whether it's self-help books, whether it's New Year's resolutions, whether it is a, a new job, whether it's a new family or whether it might be seeking solace in alcohol or in drugs or whatever else it may be, we find these things are never sufficient either to transform us or really to satisfy us. We always need more. It's never enough. And we find that this world has a great many ideas about where salvation can be found. And what we tend to do is we move from one to the next as we find that it's not enough. We we find this hollow promise that if we just have this lifestyle, if we just have this hobby or this job or whatever it might be and we find that they don't deliver, that they can't bring transformation or satisfaction, we move on to the next and to the next. What we ultimately need is something more, something better that reaches in from outside and brings transformation that we simply cannot affect ourselves. And uh, we find ultimately that this is a mystery. This is how the Bible talks about it, the great mystery of life. A, A mystery in the Bible isn't something that is simply concealed, although that is what the word means, that it's something concealed from our sight. There is an expectation in Scripture that a mystery is something that will one day be revealed that the, the situation will be resolved, that an answer, a solution will ultimately come. And that's what Paul talks about here in Colossians chapter 2. The mystery of life is how we find transformation coming to each one of us. Steve Jobs, that the boss of Apple, had a quote that he loved to use uh, of his um, a story, actually, about his predecessor um, at the helm of Apple after he'd been uh, booted out. His predecessor used to say that Apple was like a ship with a hole in the bottom that I have to try and get pointed in the right direction. He always used this quote when he talked about how um, Apple w- was really struggling uh, in the 90s. He said the CEO of the company is saying it's like a, a ship with a hole in the bottom that I have to get pointed in the right direction. Now, that the the CEO at the time had said that in an effort to convey this idea that the ship is struggling, but if I can just get it pointed in the right direction, then, then hopefully all will be well. We'll get it to the desired destination without any problem. But Steve Jobs liked to point out that a ship with a hole in the bottom is only, go- with, is only going in one direction, straight to the ocean floor and that's where Apple was headed. It was going straight to the bottom, it was hemorrhaging money, it wasn't doing well, and it was dying as a company. And he came back as this great saviour from outside with an ability to see the problems in a way that people within the company simply couldn't. And as he intervened, so Apple was turned around and become, has become one of the um, biggest, and certainly in terms of um, its worth, the most valuable company or one of the most valuable companies in the world today. And this is what we see Paul talking about in Colossians chapter 2. We see each one of us struggling to, to deal with this mystery of life, how transformation can come to our lives. And we simply can't understand. We, we think if we just strive hard enough in the right direction, we'll be fine, but it will never be enough. We're going straight to the bottom. What we need is someone to come in from outside who can see the whole picture and who has the ability to bring transformation to our lives, who can turn us around. And that is exactly what Jesus comes to do. He comes from outside. He sees the whole picture, and he is able to bring transformation to each one of us. And we find it is in this passage Jesus alone that reveals the mystery of God's salvation. The solution to our problem that has eluded us despite all our efforts is revealed in this person of Jesus. Paul says that I want you to know how great a struggle I've had for you and for those in the church at Laodicea that haven't been able to see face to face. Paul wants them to know that he is nevertheless And praying for them. He is desiring that they would do well, and he says that he wants them to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. He wants them to know that Jesus is the only means of salvation because, as he says in verse uh, 4, there are those coming along who are going to bring another gospel, another plan of salvation, and it's not going to be Jesus, and it's going to bring chaos to the church. I want you to know that Jesus alone is the one who reveals God's salvation plan, that you trust in him alone, that you proclaim him alone, because He is the only means by which salvation can come to you and to me. So don't listen to those other people, and certainly don't preach the message that they share. Jesus reveals who God is. He is that the Word of God made flesh, Scripture says. He is everything that God is, described in Scripture, actually lived out. It is as if God has come down to earth and has lived before us to show us what he wants us to be like as human men and women. That is exactly what is happening in, in the person of Jesus. But more than that, he is the one who comes to actually pay the price for our sins so that if you are a sinner this morning, you do not work your way into God's good graces. You simply call out and ask that Jesus would forgive you, that your sins would be placed upon his shoulders so that when he died on the cross 2,000 years ago, your sin was paid for. His perfect life is credited to you as your sin is credited to him. And you're transformed freely by Jesus. Who else could do this but God alone? Because Jesus is perfect. He has never sinned. He is completely holy. He's God. And yet he is also a human being like you and me. So when he dies on the cross, he dies a human's death. But he dies taking our sin upon himself because he knew no sin. He doesn't need to die for his own sin. He's never sinned, but he can die for you and he can die for me. And so when we call upon him, we find that the mystery of salvation is revealed to us in Jesus, that we simply must call upon his name and the free gift of grace in Jesus is given to each one of us when we simply ask for it. Jesus alone is good enough to save you. He alone is perfect enough to be your savior. You will never be perfect enough, but you don't need to be. We find also that Jesus alone is good enough to transform your life. So as you call upon the name of Jesus and confess your sins and have them forgiven, have your life turned around to now face in the right direction by somebody bigger and better than you are, we find now that he is good enough, alone is good enough, to have you walk in that new way that he set before you in verse 6 through to 15. Anthony Daniels, who writes under the name Theodore Dalrymple, um, wrote a book a while back in which he really laments the state of our nation. He notes the cultural and social decline, and he says the UK is in dire straits, not because of its financial problems, but because of the way society just isn't working. We find that uh, the family unit has broken down and we see that um, communities are turning on one another. There is no sense of, of community cohesion anymore and, and our society is, is falling apart at the seams. And what's interesting is that Dalrymple can see the problem but he has no real idea of what the solution is. He comes up with all sorts of things like better education, a stricter morality that we should be teaching in schools, stricter parenting, and so on, but he fails to see that simply trying harder will never be enough. They're not going to solve the problems of society because the people who are striving to do these things themselves are flawed, will fail, will always fail. And so, however hard they might try, it will never be enough to bring transformation to a society. The the, the society that he harks back to of um, a previous century is a society that wasn't transformed through the hard work of people, but was transformed by the presence of the gospel in its midst, by the presence of the church in its midst, as that shaped and defined our society. And our society is broken apart because the gospel, Jesus Christ himself, has been removed from the heart of our society. And we shouldn't look on the past with rose-tinted glasses. Our society wasn't perfect. And certainly the church wasn't perfect. But whilst the church was still proclaiming the good news of the gospel across our society, freely at every level of society, from amongst the poorest right through to the very upper um, class and the very heights of government, transformation kept coming. And so we find that it is Jesus alone who is good enough to transform us as individuals, but also as a society. And that is because Jesus alone fulfills us. Paul says, in Jesus the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. And Paul was reminding the believers in Colossae that Jesus was fully God and was alone able to deal with the problems that we face in life. And so we find that Paul wants them to know that if they have received Christ as their Savior, they have received God himself into their lives. This is why God alone is able to transform them and enable them to walk in that way, because he actually dwells within them because of the work of Jesus. And so true reformation can come to their hearts because God dwells with them in them. And so we find that when they live out the life that God has called them to live in his word, that that will correspond with the new nature, the new heart, the new spirit that dwells within them. And so they will begin to be satisfied. And the interesting thing is that, that even when they sacrifice... Even when they give up things that they previously have found pleasurable, that they previously enjoyed, that they might still enjoy today, when they give up those things and live a new, perhaps harder way of life than they did before, they will still be satisfied because that new life will correspond with their new nature. When they live with the old ways of life they had before they became Christians, when they try and enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season what they will find is that they might have some temporary enjoyment, but it will always bring conflict with their new nature. They can't live the old way and have this new life in Jesus. Jesus is their perfect Savior, but also their perfect sustainer. And so they must live in accordance with this new way for all that it might bring sacrifice and hardship and difficulty into their lives because it alone will bring true satisfaction because they've been made new. They're not the people they once were. The upshot of this for the Christian is in the words of Dick Lucas, that in Christ we have all that can be ours this side of heaven. What a wonderful uh, little saying, a wonderful little turn of phrase. In Christ we have all that can be ours this side of heaven. There is nothing that can come against us that is beyond Christ's ability to deal with. But there is also nothing that we are called upon to sacrifice in this life for his sake that will result in our being any less satisfied with him as our Lord and Savior. Because for all that we must lay aside some things, Jesus is still better. He is still worth more than the things that we've had to sacrifice. And it may be that we've had to sacrifice some things that are very dear and precious to us. It may be that we've had to lay aside things that we desperately want to do. But the way that we view all the things we have in this life now is we view them through the lens of the life we have with Jesus. That his way is better. That his desires are better for each one of us. They have become our desires, however imperfectly at this point. And so, the meaning and the purpose and the value we find in the things of this life has changed. And so, the way we live our lives must also change and correspond to this new life we have in Jesus. If you knew somebody who wanted to Uh, trained to be a surgeon, but all you ever saw them do was spend time with their family or watching telly or out in the countryside walking instead of studying medicine, what conclusions would you draw about their desire to be a surgeon? Would you want that person to operate on you? Almost certainly not. There is a big challenge for us to spend time with Christ, to, to lay aside time in order to grow in our faith, to lay aside the desires that this world imposes upon us and, and devote ourselves to following Jesus, and that life will be costly. And yet when we do so, we find that this expresses the faith that we've been given as a free gift by Christ. We find that the reward of that way of life is actually knowing Jesus better, serving him more faithfully and glorifying him more abundantly in all we do. We are being trained in that way of living for the kind of life we are to have, not just now, but for all eternity. It speaks of the desire we have to be a certain person, to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus, a son or a daughter of God. And so we find Jesus fulfills us, and that reorientates our desires as well as the way we know we ought to go in this life. We find Jesus also gives us a new family, and this new family is better That is not to do down in any way the family unit which God himself has created and ordained and has said is for our blessing, but we find that we are adopted into the family of God and this family covers the whole earth, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, and is a family that can never truly be broken or divided because it has been called together and is sustained by God himself. We know that our own earthly families can let us down. We can let them down. Families can be broken and divided, and it's so sad when that happens, and it's terrible when we ourselves experience that. But this new family we are given in Christ is a family that can never be truly broken in that way, because it's held together by God himself. The concern Paul has for the believers in the early church is that they go back to Judaism, that they adopt circumcision, that they see the need to become Jews first before they can become Christians, because Jesus is the Jewish Messiah after all. And Paul wants them to understand they don't need to do those things. There is nothing that they can do to put themselves in God's good graces, as it were. It is trust in Jesus alone as the Saviour. That truly transforms them. That is what unites them, his work on their behalf, not some outward sign that might uh, unite them together. The family of God is um, created by Christ and is sustained by him, not through the work that these people might do themselves, and so it is for us. We come together and we worship Sunday by Sunday. We're doing it remotely at the moment but we don't do so as, as um, anything other than an expression of the family bond that we already share in Jesus. This is not what unites us. Jesus is what unites us. It's not shared views on every point of theology or doctrine. It's not a shared desire to serve the community. These things are all great, but it's not what unites us. It's not what sustains our fellowship. It's not what makes this family, this Christian family, better than any other family we might have. And the result of all of this is that we have a family that can weather any storm, that whatever happens within this church family, we find we can overcome that problem, because in the end, Christ is sufficient to overcome any problem, and we are united together in him. Jesus fulfills us. And Jesus gives us a new and a perfect family. And as we focus upon Jesus as being better in our lives, so we are able to address problems. We're able to grow and be blessed and encouraged in these other areas of church life. We find that Jesus is better because he frees us also from sin. We are made into this family as a result of our sins having been washed away. And Paul says you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, but God has made you alive together with Christ. And he did this by forgiving all your sins, by canceling the record of your debt, your sin that stood against you with all of its legal demands. That is, you must You must pay the price. You must die as a result of the sins that you have committed. And Jesus accomplished all of this by nailing our sins to the cross. He didn't ignore it. He didn't sweep it under the carpet. He paid for it so you can have full confidence that your sins are forgiven when you call upon the name of Jesus. And so we find that we are free from the cost of sin, free from slavery to sin and to self, and we can live the way God desires, that we might be fulfilled, that we might share in this wonderful family that we have been given as a result of Jesus' work, because Jesus is better. And this is how we are changed and transformed. This is how our church will grow, by focusing on the sufficiency, the perfect work of Jesus. Jesus alone is good enough. And we find that Jesus alone is good enough also in verses 16 through to the end of the passage to sustain us in that way. It's not just that he alone is sufficient for our salvation. It's not just that he alone is sufficient to see us um, continue on um, in this new life with this new family and and so on to bring that um, sense of transformation to each one of us. Jesus alone is sufficient to sustain us in walking in that way. Each one of us has experienced a feeling, I'm sure, of weariness in the Christian life that, that so many things keep going wrong. We're, we're Christians. We know we're Christians. We know that we have been transformed by Christ. And yet, just an insurmountable mountain of stuff has been deposited in our lives that we just, it's just one thing too many. How on earth can I cope? with all of this going wrong in my life. And yet Paul says to the believers in Colossae that if you try and do this on your own, be sustained by your own strength, you are going to fail. You must remember that Jesus alone is good enough to sustain you because one day your strength will fail. He says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food or drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism, the worship of angels and so on, going on about, um, in detail about visions and, and being puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind and not holding fast to the head from whom your whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. All of that is Paul saying there are all sorts of things other believers are going to expect you to do and when you go through difficult times it may be that people are going to say well you're going through difficult times because you're not observing all of these things that you ought to observe. They're going to judge you. And they're going to say you're not good enough as a Christian. And it's right that you go through hard times because you're just not good enough as a Christian. And Paul says that's not how this works. God alone is sufficient to sustain you through all the hardships of this life. It's not about how well you do, although of course it's important that you strive to live for God, that you strive to know him more and love him more. But God alone is the one uh, that will knit you together and will nourish you and will strengthen you. So cling to the head of the, the body that is Jesus. Cling to him, He will guide you and lead you through. And what God is saying here is that you will be sustained and will be enabled to be faithful in times of hardship as you cling to Jesus. He's not saying that everything will be um, transformed and you'll never experience anything but blessing and joy uh, and good things. He's saying that you will certainly experience hardships, but as you do so, you will have the strength to face them as you cling to Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 20 and says, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. He says, These things have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Paul says you're never going to defeat sin in your life. You're never going to be sustained in the Christian walk if you try and do it yourself according to the wisdom of the world, by disciplining your bodies physically. He's making reference to here, which become even in the early days of the church, a key element of the Christian life, that you must deprive your body in an effort to be more holy. And Paul says it doesn't work like that. Simply denying yourself food or going out and living like a hermit in the desert isn't going to make you automatically more holy. What you need is to cling to Jesus. So don't trust in tradition to make yourself more holy. There's nothing wrong with traditions. And and Paul makes uh, use of of traditions elsewhere in reference to other churches to say that, that you know, these things are good for the discipline of the church body together, but they're not going to sustain you because you're not perfect. And traditions aren't always perfect. And we're going to get it wrong if we just focus on what we eat and on what we drink and on the way that we live our lives every single day. What we need to do is doing everything for the glory of Jesus and focusing on him. If what we want to do today can glorify Jesus, then we go and we do it. If there's no possible way that a course of action or speech or thought could ever glorify Christ, then we ought not to do it. And Paul says if traditions are standing in your way, then move on. Ignore them. It is not all about traditions. Augustine once said, love God and do as you please. And this is the great liberty of the Christian life, that as we love God, so we will study his word more. We'll understand what he wants us to do and say and think, and we'll pour ourselves into obedience to what God has said in his word, the more we love him. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. It's not about constructing a shell around your life of traditions and saying, as long as I do those things, I'll be fine. It's about saying I want to pour myself into the the study of God's Word, into being obedient to what God has called me to be, and asking Christ to give me the strength through His Spirit to to live this way. And when I do that, however hard it may be, however difficult life may be, I know I will always be kept in the right way, because Christ is the one who is leading me through His instruction." Christ is the one who is empowering me through his spirit. And even when everything in my life falls to bits, I know ultimately that I'm still walking in faithfulness if I'm walking in this way. So we don't need to trust traditions to keep me right. We need to trust in Christ. That we don't need to trust in our experience of God. And this is a big challenge to us today because so much of our, our lives are about the experiences we have, about feelings. Our whole society works on, on how I feel today. Whether I feel attracted to um, men or to women or to both or to neither will define who I am. Whether I feel that I am uh, male or female today will define who I am. Whether I feel as a Christian that I'm close to God or not will determine whether I am actually close to God or not. And Paul says all of this is, is a nonsense. It's not about your experience of life. This is not what will sustain you from one day to the next. And as Christians, there's a real danger that that we couple together tradition and experience um, as a means of sustaining ourselves. So, to, to explain what I mean there, we quite often will think when we have a good day, when we started our day, we spent an hour with God, reading His Word and praying for everyone in the world, and, and we felt so close to God, and we had a good day that day on Monday. But then on Tuesday, we slept in, our alarm went off, we're running late, we didn't have time to spend with the Lord, so we got up and we just crashed through the day from one calamity to the next. We come to the end of that day and assume we had a terrible day because I didn't spend that hour with the Lord. Now, it's good to spend time with the Lord. It's essential that we spend time with the Lord. But the idea that I didn't spend an hour with God at the start of the day, therefore my day has gone terribly, is a nonsense, Paul says. This is a tradition that you have built. But more than that, you've associated a feeling of closeness with God with that. So when you don't carry out the tradition, you don't feel close to God, therefore you conclude you aren't close to God. Therefore, the terrible things that you've experienced that day are a result of that separation from God, that lack of closeness. And Paul's saying you're grounding all of that on how you feel, and you can't. It's not about feeling close to God. This is the way the world thinks. When you discipline the body, you feel it, and you therefore assume that you're close to God, and all will go well. Paul says, no, this is not how we work as Christians. Your emotions, your feelings will change hundreds of times every single day. And if you're pinning the sustaining of your walk with Christ on that, you're going to be all over the place. You're going to feel like you're a Christian on Monday, not a Christian on Tuesday. You're going to feel sort of close to Jesus on Wednesday and a million miles away from him on Thursday. And what will any of that mean? Paul says, nothing. What we want to do rather than focus on experience, on emotion, on feeling, is focusing on Jesus Himself, for He is the head of the church. He is the one through which all the the nourishment and strength uh, comes for the church. He is the one through whom guidance comes for the church, as the body is guided by the head, so we are guided by Christ. And if we don't focus on that, we're going to be in trouble. Alistair Begg once um, talked about that in an experience he had when he went to a church um, on one of those Sundays he had off. And, and the guy leading worship opened worship by asking everyone, how do you feel today? And he's, Alistair Begg said, what kind of question is that? I spilled my coffee and I kicked the dog and, and I, I, I didn't spend time with the Lord reading the Bible this morning. I feel like a wretch this morning. What do you have for me in worship? And the answer is nothing. If it's all about how I feel, we might as well just go home now. Instead, he says, ask me what I know about God, about the truth of God's word, about what Jesus has done for me. Help me to worship on the basis of what I know, because that will always be true regardless of how I feel. And this is exactly what Paul is saying here. Our experience, our feelings are not what it's about. It's what we know to be true about God. That is what sustains us moment by moment because Jesus is better better than your emotions, better than your feelings, better than your traditions. And we find that because Jesus is better, he will sustain us when our abilities fail. In the end, we know that we are just not strong enough, not clever enough, not good enough. Martin Luther talked about that when he said that even if I go into a monk's cell with nothing else to tempt me and to lead me into sin, I will still find sin in that cell because I am there in that cell. I bring it with me wherever I go. I am not strong enough to defeat sin myself by constructing rules or by denying myself. I need a perfect Savior. I need to submit myself to Jesus. And that is what Luther recognized he needed and what we needed. And that's what Paul is calling the believers in Colossae to here. We simply will not be able to do it ourselves, but because we are made free by Christ, we are able to go into all the world and proclaim the good news of the gospel, freedom from slavery, captivity to sin and death because of what Jesus has done. As Christian men and women, we have hope for our world, and that is that Jesus alone is sufficient for us, sufficient as a saviour sufficient as one who transforms us and brings true change to our lives, sufficient as one who will sustain us every day despite the fact everything else is going wrong. Jesus alone is enough for us. And so Paul says, cling to him, focus on him, love him, serve him, worship him, know more about Jesus, not just about the Christian faith, not just about the church, but about Jesus, who sits at the heart of it all. Jesus will be enough for us. So let's come together this week under the name of Jesus and love him and worship him as our all-sufficient Savior and Lord. Amen. It's great for us in hearing God's word to be able to then respond in some practical way together this morning. And as we've considered Jesus our perfect, our sufficient Savior, we're going to come around the table now and we're going to celebrate in a time of communion just how good a Savior Jesus is for each one of us, how perfect he is and how much we adore him for all he's done for us. Communion is an opportunity for all those who truly believe that Jesus lived, that he died um, in payment for our sins, that he was risen again to new life as a sign of the acceptance of God, of his sacrifice on our behalf. And if that's not you, if you don't believe those things, then we would simply ask that you don't participate in this time together. But if you do, regardless of Uh, your age or or where you live, where you're from this morning, uh, you're more than welcome to participate together with us in this celebration uh, of the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf, that we might be free from sin to glorify God forever. You might want to pause the video at this point to get some bread and something to drink uh, as we prepare to celebrate uh, in this part of our service. As we come to the table this morning, Before we uh, eat and drink, we hear from God's word that the passage immediately before the one we've just considered in, in Colossians 2, in Colossians chapter 1, reading from verse 15, we hear that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister." Paul is saying in this passage that um, God, in sending Jesus to die on the cross, confesses for you and for me that we are simply not good enough to live lives worthy of God, of being in His presence. We constantly fail. We constantly frustrate Him as a holy God, a perfect God, because we sin all the time. And the more we try and save ourselves by doing good things, the more we sin and the more distance uh, we place between us and him. We need someone perfect to come and lift us from where we are and transfer us to, to where we need to be to glorify God, to be satisfied and fulfilled in him as we've considered already this morning. And Jesus is God's confession that we are not enough, but he is. And as we come around the table this morning, we are confessing that we are not enough by ourselves, but Jesus is our sufficient Savior to save us, but also in saving us to send us out into the world. As Paul says in this passage, Jesus is reconciling all things to himself, bringing all things under his royal rule, and we're a part of that. And he is about that work in our lives today. And so as we eat and drink in just a few moments, we are confessing not just that we have been saved, transformed by the work of Jesus on the cross in a moment, but that our whole lives have been reorganized, realigned and placed under the rule of Jesus, that he might be the first over all, us included, that we might submit to his royal rule every moment of every day. And we're preparing to do that in this coming week as we eat and drink together. So as we prepare to come around the table, let's spend a moment in prayer reflecting on this past week, perhaps, on this week to come, on our failures, but also in the triumph of Jesus as our perfect Savior. Let's take a few moments as we consider the power of Christ's glorious sacrifice that can so radically transform you and me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning confessing that we are a flawed, and imperfect, a sinful people in need of a powerful Savior because we're not enough. And we thank you, Lord, in recognizing that you have sent Jesus to be our Savior, that when he died on the cross of Calvary, he died a perfect death so that, Lord, when we confess our sins and ask that you would save us, every one of our sins, past, present, and future, has been paid for by that work of Jesus, and we have been set free. We don't need to fear sin and death any longer. We have been set apart by Jesus for something better, something greater, for your glory. And Lord God, he has enabled us to come into your presence as we're doing right now and lift our voices and hearts in prayer before you, knowing that you hear us and you respond because of his perfect work on our behalf. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the bread as a reminder of the broken body of Jesus on the cross that accomplished all of this. And as we consider it, we are humble. Lord, that it is our sin that resulted in the breaking of the body of your perfect Son who knew no sin. And Lord, we humbly ask for your forgiveness yet again. Lord God, in drinking the cup together, we are reminded of the spilt blood of Jesus, that his perfect holy blood was shed, Lord, as our means of salvation, that we might be sprinkled clean, washed clean of the stain of sin that so corrupts our lives. And again, Lord, we are humbled. That is how much was required that we might be washed clean. And so, Father, again, we ask for your forgiveness. Not, Lord, we ask much more, Lord, as we Stand forgiven and look to the future that you would continue through this uh, remembrance of that sacrifice to shape us and mold us into the people you would have us be today, that we might faithfully serve and follow Christ. Lord God, we pray not just for ourselves, but for all of those in Ladywell Baptist Church and in Scotland and across the rest of the world. Lord, as we gather on this Lord's Day and as we celebrate around the table, Heavenly Father, each one of us longs to be your children, longs to be uh, faithful. And so, as we remember the sacrifice of Jesus, Lord, work in each one of us to that end. We ask it all, Lord, for your glory and for Jesus' sake. Lord, we ask it all. In Jesus' name we pray. Lord, we ask it all. In the perfect name of Jesus. Amen. As we come around the table, we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We'll eat the bread together in remembrance of Jesus' broken body, broken for you and broken for me. In the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Again, we'll drink the cup together in remembrance of Christ's blood shed for each one of us, let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, that we are not just an individual. Um, Lord, saved by, by some work that we might have done. Lord, always questioning whether we've ever truly done enough. Lord, always wondering if we will one day um, sin just that little bit too much and undo the salvation that we have worked up in ourselves. Lord, we thank you that you confess clearly in your word our work will never be sufficient for our salvation, but Jesus is our perfect saviour. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can never put ourselves in a position where we out-sin the grace of Christ. Lord God, we thank you that Jesus' death on our behalf covers all of our sins. Lord, it frees us from that treadmill of constantly trying to work up enough good works, Lord, that we might feel justified. Lord, we thank you that we have been set free to serve you and to glorify you because of the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. And so, Lord, we ask that you would remind us of that daily as you send us out into this coming week. Father, remind us every moment of every day that Jesus is our perfect Savior. And so, Lord, we are able to go into this world and tell others, just like us, that it doesn't matter how much they have failed, how many times they have failed. Lord, Christ is enough for them. He is enough to pay for all of their terrible deeds, however awful they may be. Lord, there is none that is beyond the saving work of Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send us out with this message of hope for our world. And we pray as well, Lord, not just for ourselves here in Ladywell, but for our sister churches in West Lothian, particularly those churches in Dedridge and in Broxburn. Lord, we ask that you would be with them, that you would encourage them, And Lord, as they confess Jesus as their perfect Lord and Savior, we might be reminded we are all united together by his blood to serve and worship you in this part of the world. And so, Lord, we pray that you would empower and equip all of us to that task. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are all one in Jesus. And so, Lord, we pray as we prepare to go out into this coming week that you would send us out as one people, with one saviour and one purpose in mind, to glorify you in everything we do, say, and think. And Heavenly Father, we ask it all not because of our own worthiness, but we ask that you might hear and respond because of the perfect worthiness of Jesus, our Lord and saviour. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now as we ready ourselves to go out into The coming week, I want you to go knowing the grace of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may you grow this week in the knowledge and in the grace of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be glory, both now and until the day of eternity. Amen.